I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles or the Bibles in the pews to the um, reading in the book of Daniel, page 744, that's been given to us today for part of our worship. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14, and then down to 27. I'll be reading. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A, a thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And down to verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's a common phrase that's been around for some time, but has recently become increasingly unpopular. You may have heard it used by politicians, celebrities, or other public figures. And it's the phrase, thoughts and prayers. In many cases, to offer thoughts and prayers to someone is a well-meaning gesture, a way to express sympathy, especially towards those who've suffered loss. However, there are times when that very same phrase may be heard as more of a sentimental platitude. It might have the opposite effect, or even worse, it could be seen as an evading of personal responsibility. You might think of a political leader who offers his thoughts and prayers to certain victims of injustice. Injustice that he himself has the power to redress, but chooses not to, perhaps out of political expediency. Or maybe you're thinking of the social media influencer who tweets out her thoughts and prayers, but really only for those persons and causes that would result in more likes, follows, and subscribes. It's in such instances where people who have suffered greatly are offered an abundance of thoughts and prayers, but little in the way of tangible, self-sacrificial help, 
costly help, that those thoughts and prayers, rather than providing comfort, might ring hypocritical or even cruel. For many Americans, Easter is a traditional celebration of new life, new beginnings, and new hope. Whether in the media or in the marketplace, the message of the Easter holiday seems to be one of optimism and positivity, that no matter how cold the winter was, and arguably was not really that cold, spring is here. Or that even if things haven't quite been going your way lately, just hang on, because better days are coming. Yet for many who have suffered unspeakable loss, people in places like Syria, Turkey, Ukraine, Nashville, people in your life, perhaps even you yourself, it's that sentiment that doesn't quite do it for us. Because after all, is generic optimism and positive sentiment all that Easter offers? If the story of a man who died and came back is really only good for inspiring some general positive sentiment once a year, wouldn't that amount to little more than thoughts and prayers? Wouldn't it be at best tone deaf, at worst cruel, to hold out the prospect of bodily resurrection, life after death, but merely as a symbolic concept or a motivational trope? See, the Bible tells us a different Easter story. The Easter the Bible speaks of is more than an idea or seasonal mindset. It's the story of a resurrection that actually took place 2,000 years ago, that changed the course of history, and that lays claim on all of our lives today. It's the true and transforming Easter that offers more than just positive vibes to those who need real help in the face of real death suffering, and sin. Dear friends, it's the Easter we all need. And it's the Easter we're going to read about in today's chapter. So I invite you, if you're able, to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. It's the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And you'd be able to find that on page 835. And it's 20 verses long. I'm going to read the entirety of it. I encourage you to follow along with me and to keep your Bibles open during the sermon, and I'll read this aloud for us. But with one heart and mind, let's hear the reading of God's Word to us. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, 
He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come under your word and to your word today uh, as people who need a better Easter. We've, for most of us, lived much of life uh, being told that this season is a time for uh, vague positivity to leave it up to us to pick ourselves up because we need hope, yet we don't know where to find it. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us today to deliver hope where we need it. Teach us the hope of Easter today. Teach us the wonder, the mystery, and the beauty, and the truth of Jesus reigning over death and the grave. Open our hearts to see him for who he is and attend to us now as we seek to hear the Spirit speaking through this chapter of Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three things that I think this chapter teaches us about the Easter we need. There are three things that I'm hoping we're going to learn as we spend the next few moments just unpacking what's going on in this chapter and they're right there in the bullet points in your bulletin, so you can follow along there. And I tried to make it liter uh, alliterative so that you would remember it, hopefully, going home. But the three points are true power, truthful proclamation, and transforming presence. Let's look at these in turn. True power. What does this chapter teach us about true power? Well, right off the bat, Matthew makes clear that what happened Easter morning was nothing short of supernatural. And that's probably the most obvious thing that jumped out at you from this text if you've read it for the first time. There's something supernatural happening here. 
Not only was the angel's appearance accompanied by a great earthquake, but the sheer physical power needed to roll back the giant stone sealing the tomb where Jesus was laid points to divine energy and agency. You see, this wasn't just a stone or a pebble that uh, could easily be rolled in front and away from that opening in the tomb. Scholars agree that this was a massive, a massive stone that took many, many able-bodied men to remove and to put in place. And yet, with divine fiat, this angel is able to come down and, with an act of God, literally, remove it from its sealed position. And from the description of this angel in verse 3, some commentators believe Matthew is signaling what's known as a theophany, which is a fancy theological word for basically a manifestation of God's presence in earthly form. And we see that all throughout the Bible, but we read one of them in Daniel, a description of, uh, of a son of man who has these features that beam from his face and from his clothes, and it's described in earthly terms. Those are what are called theophanic descriptions. And Matthew seems to be wanting to get our attention in that way by hearkening back to Daniel and saying, that divine figure you saw back in that dream in Daniel chapter 7 is what you're beholding here before you now. It's the angel of the Lord, but it is as the Lord himself. And we see from the guards' reaction in verse 4, as well as the women's fear in verses 5 and 8, that what they witnessed that morning was truly transcendent. It was otherworldly. Something extraordinary was happening. There was divine power on display. But did you notice what they didn't witness? For all the spectacular details that Matthew includes in these opening verses, neither he nor any of the other gospel writers actually describe Jesus' resurrection itself. In fact, it would appear that by the time the angel rolls back the stone, the tomb is already empty. For an account that's clearly centered on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it would seem most peculiar that the resurrection itself isn't actually the climactic moment of the story. Yet, rather than calling Matthew's account into question, it's this very unspectacular, almost matter-of-fact recounting of Jesus' resurrection that I believe is actually exactly the point. I've shared this with our congregation before, but there's a friend of mine who's a poet, and he's pointed out to me that some of the most beautiful love sonnets happen to be those that don't actually mention the three words, I love you. That instead, there's this beautiful imagery being evoked and vivid pictures of what it's like to be in love and the effects that love can have on somebody so that by the end of it, you've been led to this place where it's unmistakable. This poet is in love. But all of that's happened without any mention of the words, I love you. See, true power, like love, power that raises the dead, is humble. It's unassuming. Even in his exaltation and glory, we see the perfect humility of Christ on display. Just as he gave no answer to Pilate when he could have easily vindicated himself from all charges, just as he kept silent when mocked and beaten by the 
Roman soldiers. Just as he endured the cross while the chief priests, scribes, and elders all goaded him to climb down from it, so now, having already triumphed over the grave, he asserts his resurrection power not through worldly pomp and pageantry, but confident humility, a humility we see even in his choice to reunite and mobilize his disciples at lowly Galilee rather than Jerusalem, which was the seat of religious power. But there's something else the resurrection teaches us about true power. True power is humble, yes, but true power also seeks to love people, not control them. All throughout this chapter, we see Christ's power at work, not through coercion or power plays or manipulation, but compassion and grace. From the angel's gentle invitation and exhortation in verses 5 to 7, to Jesus' own personal reassurance in verses 9 and 10, to his use of the term brothers. Did you notice that? He refers to his disciples as brothers. Those same disciples who had denied and deserted him just days prior. In all of these ways, friends, we see that every exercise of Christ's resurrection power is an act of love and free grace. And this is, this is significant. Some years back, you might remember that the uh, Virginia lottery jackpot had gone up to some astronomical number like $750 million. I, I think it was something like that. And I remember talking about it with a friend of mine, a Christian brother. And neither of us had ever bought a lottery ticket, and so we didn't um, really have any way to experientially uh, go about this conversation. But we were just imagining what might happen if we happened to win something like that. And our minds were just melting because we just didn't have any categories for what it's like to have that much power and responsibility just instantaneously find its way into your life. But whereas for me, my, my imagination brought me down the path of, well, I guess I would pay my debts and um, get, get my loans out of the way and maybe then make some investments and um, make sure my kid has a, a good college fund and maybe uh, her kids after her and, and theirs after them and we'd be all set and, um, oh, there's, there's some music gear that I'd love to get my hands on. And, you know, that was my train of thought. Uh, on the other hand, my friend, um, he had a different way of going about it. Uh, his thought process went something like, I'd like to pay the debts of all of my extended family, and maybe after that, uh, I'll give to all of the missionaries I support so that not one of them has to ever raise funds again. Uh, and you can see where this was going, and for me, it was a moment where I, f I felt my, my spiritual self shriveling by the moment, and my, my conscience was squeezing me because of my immaturity relative to the love that was being evidenced in this Christian brother. See, even as late as verse 17, Jesus, he's already appeared to his disciples and yet the resurrected Christ is still bearing with those among them who doubt him. What compassion and what patience, what love 
What power, true power on display. Friends, that's the heart of Christ in his resurrection. This is who Jesus is in his glory. He's not a tyrant or a power monger. He's not a despot as we know this world to have. He's wholly other. He's a God of true power who expresses that power and channels it in untold love towards the undeserving and towards the needy. Now, could there be a starker contrast than what we find in verses 11 to 15? We see here that panicking over their twofold failure to, one, expose Jesus as an imposter, and two, ensnare his disciples in grave robbery, the religious elites, the establishment at that time, they resort to terrorizing the disciples into silence through false incrimination and political maneuvering. Clearly, these spiritual frauds are far more concerned about their reputation and controlling public opinion than they are with the truth about what's actually happened. Perhaps there's a cautionary lesson here for those today who might mistake controlling people for true power as defined by the resurrection. Whether it's a church or a Christian organization that imposes non-disclosure agreements on its employees in order to intimidate would-be whistleblowers and preserve PR optics. Or it could be simply the way you and I relate to others on a daily basis. Something as ordinary as that. Especially those in our lives with less privileges or status. Those on the margins. The needy in our lives. What does true power look like in our relationships with them? Is it to control them and keep them under our thumb? Or is it to extend extravagant love even when it's undeserved? True power, the resurrection teaches us, true power moves towards others in love, not control. So there's true power, but secondly, we see truthful proclamation. Truthful proclamation. We just saw how the religious elites had no problem doctoring the truth in order to manage impressions and maintain political power. But what about Jesus and his disciples? How do we know they're not just telling tall tales in order to save their own skin? How can we rely on their testimony? Well, time doesn't permit us to get into all of the arguments that support the historicity of the resurrection. There have been volumes and volumes of very, very helpful resources that, that have been published. And uh, if you'd like to explore more I'd like to extend an invitation on behalf of the pastors, the, the elders here. Uh, we'd love to get those resources into your hands and help you walk through whatever questions you would have. And you can, you'd be well served taking your time doing that. But this morning, obviously, we don't have the, the ability to go through each argument in turn. But I think this chapter does provide us with some compelling evidence to consider and it invites us to weigh the truthfulness of the Easter message. And this is true no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're not a Christian and you're just checking out the faith, or you've been a Christian for years and decades. I think the scriptures continually invite us to ask hard questions, to go to the Word of God and to challenge, so to speak, 
the Spirit to teach us what we might not already know. And this might sound strange at first, but I think perhaps one of the most compelling evidences for the authenticity of Matthew's account is its humanity, its human honesty. For one thing, we've already seen how unassuming the Gospels are in their mention of the resurrection itself. At the very least, when we compare the Easter account to pagan mythologies that were contemporary with the Gospels, especially those purporting resurrection of some kind, one of the most noticeable literary differences is that the Easter account seems altogether uninterested in portraying the resurrection itself as a spectacular event. Sure, the angel's appearance and announcement is indeed spectacular, but when it comes to the resurrection itself, there's virtual silence. We don't know what it looked like. In other words, unlike pagan mythology that goes to great lengths to embellish the details of res resurrection legend and myths, Jesus' resurrection account doesn't read anything like religious propaganda. Second, Matthew, along with the other gospel writers and the Apostle Paul as well, what he does, and we picked up on this already, he appeals to eyewitnesses who are contemporaries at the time that it was written. And we see that in verse 15. He's letting the reader know, if you're wondering where the things you hear about today as you're reading this came from, there's, here's the source. You can check it out for yourself. Do your own homework. You'll find out where I got my sources. It's a fact check built into his testimony. Because these eyewitness accounts, without whose corroboration, the facts of, uh, of what he's talking about would, would barely survive beyond a generation. Matthew understands that, as do the other gospel writers. And so he is upfront and honest about the fact that you can check these things out for yourself. And I think that is a compelling argument for not just the survival of Matthew as a, as a literary document, but Christianity as a whole. Remember that Christianity didn't, didn't begin like it appears today in the world. It was a grassroots fringe movement that was often mistaken as a sect of Judaism. And it was viewed as kind of an off-the-wall religious group that would probably crop up a little bit and then fade out just like the dozens of others that came before it and came after it. Now, there's a common misconception that because ancient civilizations happened to be more primitive, maybe technologically or scientifically, therefore, well, they must have been less intelligent or more gullible and more prone to superstition than we are. And maybe that's why they believed in the resurrection. But is that so? I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's not exactly certain that we today are necessarily more intelligent or less superstitious. I think the booming astrology industry might bespeak that. And for me, myself, I mean, I can barely remember my wife's phone number since I got a smartphone. And I think when you compare that up against the scholarship of the time, there's a group called the Masoretes. And these were Jewish scribes who uh, were basically the gatekeepers of Israel's library. And they created the vowel pointing system in Hebrew, 
which is still used today. But when you read their work, as well as all kinds of other rabbinical writings during that time, what you see is exquisite scholarship, academic work of the highest order, all without the use of an internet, all on parchment and very rare, with very rare writing utensils and materials so that when they got around to putting it down on that paper or, or on, the, on those surfaces, it wasn't like they were able to just send out a 160-character tweet, and if they didn't like it, they could take it back and redo it. No, they had to know what they were doing was accurate. And when you judge the accuracy of their work on those terms, you realize, no, these were highly intelligent, sophisticated people who were arguably more critical in some ways than we today are. Um, and you'd wonder whether they would stand for something like fake news that's become so ubiquitous today. They were highly scrutinizing of claims, of especially religious claims. And so I think that's something that we need to bring to our assessment of Matthew's testimony here. This is not just this far-flung, pie-in-the-sky religious superstition that a whole bunch of people and mosques just bought into because they're credulous like that. No, these are people who uh, took very seriously their faith claims and needed evidence in order to buy into them. But not only that, all of the gospel accounts make abundant mention of those who doubted reports of the resurrection. We see it even here in our text. Verse 17, the risen Jesus has already even appeared to them, and still some are doubting. Of course, the most famous account of which is Thomas, the apostle. Now, this stands in marked contrast to the dozens of pagan and Gnostic movements, along with their sacred texts, all of which would rise up and then fade out just as quickly before and after the time of Christ. Why? Why were there so many, and why have so few survived? Well, they were all dismissed on the grounds of insufficient evidence to support their claims. Friends, we're not the only ones who are critical and skeptical. The Bible understands, and the Bible is written in a world where skepticism is the norm. And we are in that world as well. And so the Bible invites us to investigate just as it did its original readers. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing. Investigate this proclamation. Is it truthful? Does the evidence add up? But third, all four Gospels go out of their way to highlight the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, why is that significant? It might even sound misogynistic or biased for me to even bring it up in that way. Well, it's significant because during the ancient Near Eastern uh, period, which is a very broad period of time, but certainly in that part of the world, it was a patriarchy. And what that meant socially is that women, when it came to testifying to things or giving their word or giving an eyewitness account, they had no credibility whatsoever in that society. And it's pretty terrible, but that's what it was. And it's important that we, uh, whatever uh, feelings we have toward that fact, acknowledge that that was the fact of things. And so for women to be featured and even highlighted prominently in the gospel accounts 
as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection was not only unprecedented, but it would be considered organizational suicide. It was the worst way to propagate your message. It was socially a surefire way that it would be immediately dismissed by anyone who reads it. And yet, why would the gospel writers choose all four of them in their own periods of time and in their own ways to include this detail of the resurrection? The only plausible answer is that that's how it happened. That against all social odds, truthful proclamation was that important that knowing it would be summarily dismissed by many people on account of the fact that the women were highlighted as the first witnesses. Matthew, along with all the other gospel writers, they found it to be true. And so friends, these are just a few ways that hopefully, um, again, are not gonna close the book on any of these questions that you might still have. And so I encourage you, please, let, let this just be a jump off point for you to investigate, to explore for yourself the claims of the resurrection. And there's so much more out there for you to, to weigh in the balance. But on this last point of the way God chose to reveal the resurrection, it's not that men or Wealthy people are unable to believe in the resurrection. But I think what it communicates to us that God chose people who are marginalized, disempowered, underprivileged, in particular, to be those who he uses to convey his truth. It speaks of his character. And it just so happens that it fits right in with the pattern we see all throughout the scriptures. That God does not favor the strong, he doesn't favor the powerful. When he's choosing to get something done, his preference is for those who are weak, those who have little, those who have need. That's his heart. So that no, no one can boast that today, if you believe in the resurrection, it's not because you were smart enough. It's not because the first eyewitnesses were socially credible enough. No, it had to be God himself revealing it to you, reaching out through the generations and through time and space to open your heart and your eyes to see Jesus in his resurrection glory. The Easter we need is a truthful proclamation. But lastly, the Easter we need, it teaches us of a transforming presence. Even if you're at a place where maybe you're a Christian, or even if you're not, you might intellectually be able to assent to the plausibility of the resurrection. Maybe this happened. I'm willing to grant that it's a possibility. Yet, I think the question remains for us. So what? What, what difference does it make that this might have happened or that this even definitely happened? Well, it makes all the difference in the world and we've been singing about it. We've been confessing it from the creed. We've been hearing it prayed. It means that Easter is far more than thoughts and prayers. It's God's truthful proclamation to us that death is not the end for us. That the grave is not invincible. 
the grave and all the decay and sin that lead to it is no longer the black hole that swallows up life in the end. Rather, because as Jesus tells his disciples at the end of this chapter, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Because he now rules and reigns in resurrection glory, because he's overcome, he's overcome the grave, nothing in this life, not even death itself, could separate us from his transforming presence. Friends, it's his presence that explains best what can turn this cowardly, ragtag group of disciples who cowered in fear just days before the resurrection into the most galvanized, empowered ambassadors for the risen Christ, who, many of whom went to the, their death with that truthful proclamation on their lips. What explains that? It can't just simply be that they had some data points and facts checked off in their minds. No, they encountered someone. They were with someone. It was Christ himself, the person of his risen glory that was with them even to the end of their age, even to the very end of their lives. And it's that risen Christ who promises to be with us always to the end of this age, to the end of our days. He's with us even in our darkest darknesses, not as wishful thinking, but as the real presence of God abiding with his people. And that's really what we celebrate here as we come to the Lord's table. We're celebrating God with us. We're coming full circle where Matthew introduced us to Emmanuel, God himself among us, with us. And now he has gone before us into the heavens, yet is still with us because the grave that used to separate us is now powerless over us. When Christ says, Behold, I am with you always, friends, the you there is not just, to address, is not just addressed to us as individuals. What we do at the table is we celebrate a family meal. We're with one another as well. There's a sense in which when Jesus says, I am with you always, he's speaking to his disciples. And so maybe a uh, uh, a better translation of it would be, I'm with y'all, always. But it goes even beyond that, I think. As, as uh, my resident Southern dialect coach has advised me, uh, I think this would be a case in which the fullest scope of what Jesus is saying is, I will be with all y'all, always. And that's a big claim, because here's Jesus 2,000 years ago, reaching forward in time to all y'all and saying, I want to be with you. I will be with you. I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the darkness? What is the shadow of the grave that looms over your life today? The sun has risen over it. He shines and beams into it. Death is not the end. And Easter gives us more than mere thoughts, mere wishes. It gives us a truthful declaration that a victory has been won, that in him we will reign. 
just as we read about in Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days, he's given to the Son of Man all authority in heaven and on earth. And the Son of Man, what do you know? He shares that with us. There will come a day where we will reign with him in glory. And until then, we wait and we believe. 